This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Listeners, you can now support the continued growth of the show. If you're interested, go to glow.fm slash e2 for more info. That's glow.fm slash e2. If you enjoy the content we are producing here and our podcast is part of your routine, please go ahead and check that out. Today, I'm speaking with Victor Cho. Victor recently served as the CEO at Evite, where he led the company back from COVID-19 extinction and returned it to growth. Prior to that, he was the CEO at Kodak Gallery during a multi-year turnaround. He's also served as the vice president and leader of Intuit's web channel, taking the business from 300 million to over 1.3 billion. He has also spent time at Microsoft, where he launched some of the company's earliest internet commerce initiatives. The list goes on. In this episode, we talk about Evite's challenges through COVID, Victor's early days at Microsoft and Intuit, his latest endeavors, including his incredibly valuable online courses, and much more. So with that intro out of the way, let's get right to the show. Here is my great conversation with Victor Cho. So look, you've had a a super colored career in tech. You're at Microsoft, Intuit, Kodak. You were most recently at Evite, where you were the CEO. But since 95, basically, you've been involved in the world of the internet. And I read that you really knew that you wanted to run a software company when you were 14, way back when. Is that right? It is. I was a weird kid. And I, you know, I come from very humble means and I didn't have any good mentors. So I didn't even know what a CEO was. I didn't even know that acronym. But what I did know from my favorite book was Lord of the Rings, the complex dynamics of like the the war and the manipulations of the systems. Yeah, you know, so I thought of it as a general. I was like, you know, I want to be that you know a general of software someday. When I was young, uh, and the reason I love software is because I had gotten my hands on a early Commodore sixty four, one of the very first home computing devices, and that, I just fell in love with that and what it could do. So it was a combination of those two things, which is, oh my god, I love this device. This is going to change the world. And you know, I'm not a great soldier, but I think I could be a really good general because I tend to be a more systemic thinker. And then I later found out, oh, yeah, that's being a CEO of a software company. But yeah, that was at a very early age, uh, all the way back in high school. I knew that was my true north. Were you studious? Did you know that you wanted to go to school for computer science or, or something related to tech? You know, it's funny. I, I made a shift because I had that early computing device. I learned how to program at an early age and actually had a little consulting business when I was little. I was building database systems for my school district and getting paid for it when I was in, you know, that was in high school, which was awesome. It's one of the best jobs. And originally applied to, I went to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia with a CS degree, but, and started there actually in computer science. And and when I got there, I eventually made the shift cleanly into business. And it was funny, it was based on one simple book. Cause I remember, again, I knew I wanted to go be the, you know, the general and figure out that there was a business track. So they had a dual degree program there. So I was taking the business courses in concert with the um, computer science courses. And I, I opened up this marketing textbook and there was a diagram. I still remember it vividly in my mind, had a pie chart. It said, hey, if you're going to be a CEO, this is the distribution of the types of roles right, that end up in the CEO position. And there was this huge pie slice for sales and marketing. And then there were other things, you know, business development, whatever. And then there was a tiny sliver for you know, technical. And that was all that it was needed. I was like, I'm go- yeah. If I'm going for the statistical odds, I'm going to make a clean shift into business. I don't need the technical background because I already got some underpinnings. And so shifted cleanly into business and then also started studying psychology, which I thought was fascinating. 
And you're also providing content in that area. I mean, you've got frameworks regarding the eight essential leadership skills for any leader. You have this career course that I want to dive into later on in the show. But before we get there, let's backtrack a little bit. So you start out at Microsoft. You have several roles there over the course of, I think, seven or eight years. What was that experience like? What did you learn at Microsoft and how did that launch you into the next chapter of your career? I loved that environment on so many levels. So at the time, this was between 93 and 2000. I'd say the biggest things that I learned there, one was the power of ecosystems versus products. That system terminology, and again, that systems thinking was embedded into the deepest strategy of Microsoft, right? How do you use this thing called Windows to drive an ecosystem of applications? And how do those applications create their own ecosystems? So that kind of training, which was never introduced in business school, was awesome. Another key thing for me uh, that has kept with me is, you know, Microsoft back then was probably one of the premier front runners in treating the employees well, meaning treating the employees like a true stakeholder. You know, if you look if you look at the campuses now, you know, the crazy Apple UFO and the Facebook campus, the Google campuses, to some degree, I'd argue these were all modeled on what Microsoft pioneered back in the '90s. I mean, they built the first kitchens and they gave the discounted food and the frisbee you know the frisbee zones and the you know volleyball courts and all of that stuff flexible hours right it was an amazing place to work and their simple premise was make an amazing place for your employees and they'll deliver some great work so that i've always kept that with me in terms of the employee-centric nature of the business the third thing i'd say if uh that came out of that was just the acceleration value of coming out of a brand like microsoft that rapidly accelerated me into a world of big numbers and big scale I mean, you take to it naturally. I, I think under your role at Intuit, you take the web channel from 300 million in top line to 1.3 billion. What do you assume are the factors that contribute to that rise, that success? Yeah, that's that's a great story. So Intuit, uh, when I joined, a small fraction of their revenue on a relative basis was coming through the web channel. I want to say maybe 15% was online. Uh, and this was in 2004. And just strategically and abstractly, when you thought about a business, even in 2004, it was clear that number should have been way higher. There should have been a lot more revenue flowing through the internet channel. They were still very retail-centric, right? That was their primary channel. So they had brought me on board to help figure that out, which is like, how do we get to the... And I, I said, hey, the natural share point for this should be at least 50%. If you, you know, look at market comps, just the nature of what that business was. So the goal is, okay, how do we move it from 15% of revenue to 50% of revenue over some short period of time? The mechanism to do that, it wasn't anything revolutionary. You know, a, a lot of times in in business, like there, yes, there are these crazy home run swings that are aggressive, but in so many other cases, it's literally just do the basic stuff. So literally, you know, the four years that Intuit was putting in a scalable commerce engine, a team that actually could understand and scale infrastructure, you know, analytics capability, you know, marketing capability, just bring them current state. So you know, a lot of it was the basic blocking and tackling of putting together high-scale infrastructure and technology to get the channel working. Uh, and then the other piece was the kind of strategy mindset, making sure that the company was thinking web first in terms of its products and how it was evolving its offerings over time. Folks probably know you as the CEO of Evite. Uh, I would assume that's kind of your biggest win. H how did you end up there? Like, How did you make that transition from where you were previously into that CEO seat? Uh, so my first CEO role actually came out of Intuit. I got contacted by recruiters to go from Intuit to my first CEO gig, which was running Kodak Gallery, also known as Ophoto. It was uh, kind of the Ophoto brand, the first dot-com wave. And then, yeah, that transition, a lot of times is hard. Like when you, you know, going from big company, non-CEO to CEO role, 
for me, it was actually a relatively seamless transition, mainly because, again, going all the way back to my 14-year-old goal, I had a very strange career arc, meaning I never actually pursued a CEO role, if that makes sense. I always pursued the knowledge that I thought I needed to eventually be a CEO. A couple of clarification questions before we move on. So I was reading about the history of Evite. It was acquired in 01 by Ticketmaster. Is that right? And at some point then acquired by IAC? Yeah. You know, actually the Ticketmaster one might even be news to me. So uh, I, I think of it more as it got bought by IAC back in, yeah, around that time frame, early days after the first dot-com bubble implosion. Uh, and they picked it up. And then they eventually ended up selling it to Liberty Media, which is the holding company, uh, Liberty Interactive, John Malone, this big cable guy out of Denver in 2008, I want to say, or, or thereabouts is when um, they took over the asset. And then I took it over in 2014. And then you stepped down from the CEO seat in 2022, was it? December 2021. That's right. So what was the decision making process in terms of you deciding to leave as CEO? And now you're on the board, I believe, correct? Yeah, no, that was, uh, you know, it's a, it's a crazy story. So during COVID, of course, having an event company is not the kind of business you want to be in. There's the, the companies on the good side of COVID and the companies on the bad side of COVID. And a party company that gets people together in person is the wrong side. So suffice it to say, the business was, of course, losing a ton of money because all of the parties were gone. And our holding company, Liberty, was also dealing with a lot of big challenges at the time because they owned... You know, or had large stakes in places like Live Nation and Ticketmaster and you know Formula One Racing, TripAdvisor. A lot of these businesses were just like everyone else, right? We're kind of under distress. So we ended up selling the business and taking Evite through a selling process. And in that process, I had made some great business connections in the LA area. Uh, they actually pulled together the capital on their side, and I came in to continue to run it as CEO, and we extracted the business and took it private. My friend David Yom, who's now running the business and helped bring the capital in, we were in the really in the ship together, almost like two peas in a pod for a year and a half, bringing it to stable, getting the business to health, profitability, which by the end of 2021, it was in really good shape. And so, yeah, so he, you know, he took the reins full time and I kind of stepped back just into a board role, which I'd been doing since, uh, since we extracted. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Tulusma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Tulusma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electrocast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Yeah, on top of other things, I mean, you're you're on the speaking tour, you're developing courses, you're doing podcasts. Obviously, are there things about it you miss? Absolutely, I will go back and operate a business. Hopefully, here in 2023 again. I love seeing the full end and spectrum of right, uh, kind of ideating on the right strategy and approach, and then actually making it happen. Would you do something zero to one? Or are you looking for something more mature? This stage in my career, going into a startup, would be. Probably not in the cards, but it's maybe not for the obvious reasons. It's not because of the work or the lack of scale. It's uh, this goes back to one of the projects that I've worked on over the last six months. You know, the next role that I go take as a CEO, I want to be a very public case study of what I call shareholder balance in executive function. So there are a lot of businesses that talk about balancing multiple stakeholders. And when I talk about stakeholders, I mean you know your shareholders are one, 
right? Your customers are one, your employees are a stakeholder. A lot of businesses at least try to get those three generally directionally right these days. But there is a fourth stakeholder, which is absolutely critical, which is society, right? The broader society, your your partners, your vendors, the the, the community around you. And that absolutely has to be a stakeholder if you're a business. Running an operational engine to balance all four of those things is actually quite complicated. Why is it hard for organizations to execute this? So a lot of companies get the first three right. So they're able to balance the shareholders, the customers, and the employees, but they're not able to layer on that fourth pillar, which is society, as you describe. Yeah, Stick, I would argue one of the most important things and maybe the hardest things as a CEO and an operator is the balance across stakeholders. Right, it's actually a, it's a way easier job to be, you know, and I I, lo- I love this term because it's so accurate to be what I call a business mercenary. And what's a business mercenary? A business mercenary really doesn't care about all the other stakeholders. A business mercenary really is is living by that what I call archaic ethos of the only reason a business exists is to make profit. Society as a stakeholder is the most complex of them all because. You know, employees, there's a discrete group of employees you can talk to. Same with customers, same with shareholders. The societal issues that come in are coming from this amorphous thing, which is society. It can come from like a gazillion different directions. There's all these different pressure points and pain points that are buzzing in the society. And so as a as a business owner, like what do you pay attention to? What do you action? What do you not? That's a much harder problem when you bring in the societal input. So that's and that's what makes it very difficult, but not impossible. So you mentioned mercenaries, which is one of four types of businesses that you've written about. So the other three, let's just get clarity on these. So number one are saints, what you call saints. These are 100% plus scale that delivers the social impact piece. Number two, citizens. These are companies and or a group of folks that attempt to balance all stakeholders, mercenaries, as you've already mentioned. And then the fourth being criminals, <laughs> these folks will break the law for money. So are you saying that most of corporate America, let's say, are in this third category of just simply being focused on the profits, the dollars? It is. It is actually. And I got some great quantification. Uh, there's a, a group that does impact investing that has kind of at a high level quantified. And I'd say roughly 75% of the companies that they have surveyed are in that shareholder only mode. So yeah, I would say the majority of companies are still in that bucket. And just abstractly, the, I, this metaphor I, I like because I think it's powerful, is if you think of the world as a community, which it is, and you think of the businesses in the world as the citizens, as the people, you know, imagine a town. It's like, hey, come into our town and guess what? Everyone, the way we want you to behave is just make as much friggin' money as you can. That's the community we're going to live in. That would be a terrible community to live in. It's like, oh, hey, but, you know, hey, Bill, my kid's missing. Will you help me? It's like, I don't know. You know, One of my to-dos over the next you know, N number of years is actually come to the mathematical proof of why that system is not optimal. Because I know it's not. No one's actually done a great mathematical dissection. But it's, it's clear right, that it's a town that's optimizing on that one vector is not going to outperform one that's actually in a collective set of, of collaborative effort to do the right thing and to do the best thing. I would assume lines get murky between categories two and three, so citizens and mercenaries, but not so much going up to category one, that saints category. So which organizations, companies do you consider to be part of category one, the saints, let's say? Yeah, this concept of saints, uh, again, to go, you know, going back to the city metaphor is like, you know, hey, you know, there's a small handful of people that are going to be doctors, you know, priests, depending on whether you think those are good or bad. 
uh, you know, for the firemen, like they, 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 by their nature and being, like they are just contributing to the well-being of the community. And there are companies that move into that role. So Patagonia, you know, Whole Foods, definitely before acquisition, you know, maybe still uh, after acquisition by Amazon. Those are like two of the marquee companies. Uh, but there's a whole wave of there are thousands of what are called you know, benefits and B corporations, where the literally the the effective essence of what the business does is generating a positive good. So I, I put all of them in the Saints category, which is that's awesome. Like the bigger you guys get, a hundred percent of your scale is creating some benefit. Yeah, I think Patagonia is a B corp. I think Tom Shoes is another B corp. Tom Shoes, another big example. Yeah, I think Zappos was one. Yeah, great examples. A lot of these explicitly weave into their like you know in, in terms of like you know, the the actual certification. It says we're gonna think about all stakeholders. So it's literally built into not only their purpose as a business, but it's built into the operating mechanisms that they're committing to running as a business. How does leadership factor in here? So you've said the news cycle today is rife with examples of companies and executives that have lost sight of what true leadership actually entails. So. Why is this happening? Like, what's gone on, and where are leaders getting things wrong? Maybe I should reword that. I don't know if it's that they lost sight; it's that they haven't made the elevated leap. Meaning, capitalism in its current form—you know, arguably this has been this since whatever 1600. You know, East India Company, first corporation. Like the 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 early ethos of the of the concept of the company was shareholder driven. I mean, I remember the paragraph. I forget which business book it was, but it was, you know, your role as a CEO is to maximize shareholder return. Like that's your only role. And I was like, okay, cool. I get it. So imagine, you know, we've got generations of executives, investors in the society who have that deeply ingrained, right? And that's hard to change. It doesn't change overnight. It is absolutely changing because the next wave of executives and the younger generation are not of that ethos, right? They are bringing a more balanced view. And it's it's just the tension in the system. Like there are some that are making that jump sooner versus later, and they're seeing where the trend is headed and they're realizing, yes, that actually is a better way to be a leader. And there are a bunch that are still just holding on to not the selfish motivation, but the yeah, you know, just the financial optimization motivation of the older paradigm. Let's shift gears a bit and talk about your career course. This is essentially largely based on your own experience. As a leader and as a CEO. And it's super interesting. You've got three main categories, building your capabilities, delivering real impact, and becoming energy accretive. Let's dive in a little bit here. First of all, who is the course for? Who could get real benefit out of this? Yeah, so this is a it's a terrible marketing answer, but my initial answer is like actually everybody to some degree, which I know is terrible in marketing as always, right? Who is your target segment? Uh, but let me yeah, give you two seconds of context. What what's in that course at a high level is actually let me take two steps back. I'd say 20% of my time as a CEO, I spend inculcating higher level leadership thinking into my employees uh, at all levels. Uh, and I was blessed going through Microsoft, but primarily Intuit. I was blessed with being exposed to an amazing portfolio of leadership frameworks, approaches that really helped me become a next level leader. To some degree, I just wanted to give that back because not everyone's going to be at a company where they can be exposed to that. So I packaged up, at least for me, what were the most valuable lessons that I got over my 30, you know, 30 plus years and wanted to float it back out to pretty much anybody. So I mean, it literally is, it, it could be relevant if you're just entering the workforce. I think it'd be a great, you know, my kids at some point when they go to work, I'm going to make them sit down and watch all my lessons. It literally is as it's still valuable for, you know, VP and C levels. Um, I've, I've actually had people that worked for me where 
in the past, it would have been, hey, let me sit you down and give you a coaching exercise. And now, because I'm lazy and I'm always looking for scale levers, I'm like, oh, you know what? <laughs> you really need to work on your inquiry versus advocacy because you're coming in way too hot and you know, you're not going to get anything done. This is under the Becoming Energy Accretive course module, which is, is super interesting as a title in and of itself. We don't have time to go through the entire course, but why don't we hit on a few of these? So you mentioned one, mastering inquiry versus advocacy. Talk to me about that in the context of becoming energy accretive. It seems like one of the most basic things. Uh, that's why I love, and I love the power of frameworks because they're things like once you just give the frame, it gives you something to hang your own behavior on and also identify other behavior. But that, at a high level, right, the, the concept of inquiry versus adv advocacy is simply, are you coming in and advocating a position or are you inquiring? I mean, it is what it sounds like. Or are you actually stopping to pause to inquire to gain understanding? And there are so many people that are off on that mix where they will come in with their position defined and they believe the best way to get things done is to advocate hard. I know you have worked with these people or have seen these people, right? They're going to come into a meeting. They're completely missing context. They're completely missing intent. And they just advocate, advocate, advocate. And that is incredibly draining for everybody else. I can get a group to an end result that I think is correct purely through questions, right? Purely through asking context and getting context and getting people together. And so it's it's not that you always operate in one, it's just you need to understand what those two things are and you need to get the context, right? Make sure you understand the other person's context before you can actually get stuff done. What's the connection to this other theme here? Up, across, and down communication. Up across and down communication is is one of the lessons in terms of a state with the flaw, the big flaw. Uh, and I actually had a manager who gave me this um, feedback, which was great. Uh, this is actually a Microsoft a woman named Ruth Ann. She, uh, in one of my reviews, I came in and she said, I think I talk about this in the course. She said, Victor, you do amazing work. And you know what? Nobody would know about it if I were to get hit by a bus. She's like, I think you're awesome. She's like, as long as I'm here, you're going to do great because I know the work you've done. But you know, Bill over there doesn't know. Or... And so she opened up my eyes to, well, how do you solve that? And I, you know, my first inclination was, well, guy, you know, I'm not going to go out and beat the drums on how wonderful I am, right? To talk about all my great work. And again, this is a great value in these coaching moments. She's like, well, no, you don't have to do that, right? Can you frame communication in a way that's adding value to the organization? In which case you're helping the organization, but you're also getting your brand out there. I gave a bunch of tips or examples in this course, but you know, that happens up the chain, right? Not just to your manager, but maybe your manager's manager. It has to happen across the organization. It has to happen down. So you've got to think about really the whole sphere of the company that you're operating in and whether everybody knows about the good work you're doing and the good learnings at a high level. What about this notion of mastering self-driven urgency? What do you mean by that? Self-driven urgency is, uh, if I had to degrade it down to a simple thing, there's something called the Eisenhower matrix, which is incredibly powerful tool and I dissected in a lot of depth there, but you might have seen different versions of it under different names, but it basically blocks the world into what is important and not important and what is urgent and not urgent. And so you get these four quadrants and a lot of people spend their time in the urgent and important or urgent and not important. But long story short, right? Things become urgent and once they're urgent, well, you got to kind of deal with them. And what happens the minute something becomes urgent is you lose what's called degrees of, you know, I call this degrees of freedom, uh, you know, kind of statistical term. Can't do anything else because it's like, oh, the house is on fire. Or it's like, oh, you're you're having a heart attack because you really you know, didn't take care of your body. Like at that point, you've lost degrees of freedom. And so this idea of self-driven urgency 
at the highest level, if I had to describe it, uh, which sounds crazy, but is doable, is to never let anything get into the urgent category. And the only way you can do that is through self-driven urgency, because the urgency is not coming from the system. It's coming from you preempting. You, you could call that like being the ultimate non-procrastinator, uh, which I'd say I am. And it takes rigor. It takes rigor and your own energy to give yourself the urgency to prevent stuff from getting into that quadrant. But the, when you do that, oh my God, your life gets way more zen and more importantly, um, way more efficient because you can now devote energy on the things that have the biggest impact long-term. Just listening to you talk about this idea of mastering self-driven urgency, I want to ask you this question in the context of post-pandemic. What do you think are some of the big macro trends that are going to take shape in the course of the next year or two years in business, in tech, uh, in life, if you will? What are you seeing? So one is, and I generally don't like jumping on the bandwagon of what's hot in the press, but this is a different moment. The progression of AI and ML, right, which has been worked on for you know, decades. So it's, this is nothing new. It has reached, and I would say it was a ChatGPT release because I think it happened before that. But like in the last, you know, in the last call it year, I would argue um, there has been an inflection point where the output of those systems is starting to basically create magical output, meaning it's transcending what you would expect, which is different from all of the work up until now. Even self-driving, right? I would argue. Like mathematically, you think about, oh, what's a self-driving system going to do when Tesla first came out, whatever, seven, eight years ago? It's like, okay, I get it. Like you're going to scan, you're going to figure out objects. I kind of understand it, right? But what you're seeing now with these systems are whether it's Dolly on imaging or ChatGPT or what DeepMind is doing, right? These systems are now, the output is transcending what you're expecting. And so that to me is this magic moment of, okay, there is now going to be a massive change in what computers can do. And we're at like day one out of a thousand. It is going to be as big as the internet for sure. And maybe bigger, right? And so that's, I think my prediction of what you're going to see is, you get, uh, yeah, and you're already seeing it, a crap load of capital flowing into AI, which has already been happening over the last five years. But more importantly, like literally every single business on the planet is going to be tuning their business for how do we take advantage of this new capability in the same way that every business on the planet back in 2000 was thinking, yeah, how do we take advantage of this internet thing, right? And again, that didn't, hap didn't happen overnight. It'll be a long haul. So that's one. I definitely still think we have not settled into the new working normal for business. Of course, you, you know, everybody went remote. Now we're still in kind of a pseudo hybrid. Companies like Disney are going back to you know, five days. They're on the outlier extreme. It has nothing settled. Nothing is settled. So I think that'll take a while for the world to kind of reach its new equilibrium point in terms of what does that working environment look like, which has absolutely ripple effects through things like what are cities? You know, I think in the San Francisco Bay Area where I live, I think the you know the public transit numbers are down like fifty percent still. And then the last one, this might be a little self-serving because I'm still so involved with Evite, but I actually do hope that it happens. Is I expected and still do expect a whiplash from the pandemic. You know, people talked about the Roaring Twenties moment that happened and this kind of crazy party environment. And I don't want to call it parties, but I feel like the pandemic has fundamentally changed our wiring in terms of what's important and what do we spend our time on and why. And I still think we're in the early phases of seeing the impact of that. What I hope is that people are going to spend more time in the things that matter, spend the time in their close connections, right? build friendships, get together face-to-face, -to -face, you know, spend less time on some of these social media systems, as an example. We're seeing that in some categories on, like at Evite, but it's not like the sea change yet that I'm hoping will come. No, I would agree with you. People have a desire to be in the flesh. There's this renewed energy 
with respect to almost everything in person. We're social creatures, right? We are, I mean, literally our brains are the sizes they are, not because of you know, intellect. It's largely driven by right, social signaling. Uh, there's some great books on this, right? We are literally, it creates chemicals in your body to be together in person and to shake someone's hand. That you're, you're not going to get that over digital means. I do want to ask you about your eight essential leadership skills for any leader. So folks can access this framework on your website, which we'll get to in a moment. But I'm going to run through these quickly for folks because I think they're interesting. So the eight essential leadership skills are vision, strategy, priorities, capabilities, line of sight, energy, operating mechanisms, and sequencing. So two-part question for you, Victor. One, do you give equal weight to the importance of all eight here? And two, what's the key difference between vision and line of sight? The first question, do I give equal weight? I'd say roughly, yeah. I I mean, they're all critical. They're all necessary from my perspective to be a successful leader. The one comment I'll make is that the weighting absolutely changes. Uh, You're not attacking all eight things at once, and it's, it's a little bit recursive, but this idea of sequencing is so critical, which is the failure that many leaders make is they come in and they they have their playbook. They're like, okay, I need to do all of this. And you're like, no, no, well, you got to sequence it, right? Like maybe the most important thing for you to do is just get some basic operating mechanisms in place because you have no idea where the ship's even going, right? Before you make your grand vision reframe, right? And so that strategic ability to dissect the problem and figure out the right sequencing is a very hard. It's one of the most common areas that I see leaders fail is that they just try to do too much or they're doing it out of order. But overall, everything is necessary, in terms of the difference between um, vision and line of sight, so kind of vision or a purpose, uh, I use that synonymously, is I think there's a ton of press and language around the power of setting right, a very definitive future stake of really, like, well, you know, where are we? <laughs> where are we headed? Not this year, not next year, but like, you know, Microsoft in the early days had a great line, right? Where, you know, we're going to put a computer on every desktop and in every home. I thought it was a brilliant line because you could you could see that. And this was when the personal computer right, was just starting. It's like, oh, yeah, the, of course, that's going to be the case. And that was the mantra. That was the rallying cry for years and years and years. Line of sight is a, actually a very operational construct. That is, once you have got your strategy and your vision defined, you actually have to manifest that in a set of very discrete priorities. So what's the work you're going to go do? Line of sight actually follows from that, which is, have you... Have you actually created what's called line of sight? And I got this from Intuit throughout the entire organization. So have you aligned all of the work in the system to be decked against what you said you're about to go do? Basically, what tends to happen in a business is if you don't do this rigorously and you don't put the processes and operating mechanisms in place and and enforce line of sight, just people start doing stuff. (laughs) You probably hired a bunch of smart people. They want to go do stuff. And so... You get these like hidden factories. You get work that's either you know maybe not just not aligned, but contrary to or slowing down what you're trying to go achieve. And so, line of sight is making sure it's all just very tightly aligned to what you said you're going to go do. Now it's very cool, and folks can dive in on your website, which is victorcho.com. You provide links to your course there. Uh, folks can access a lot of your frameworks, uh, some of your thinking on the website. Where else can folks connect with you, Victor, if they want to learn more? Those are all great. Uh, Direct email is me at victorcho.com. So that comes straight into one of my way too many inboxes, but I'm pretty good about responding there. The only thing is to mention is that course is completely 100% free forever. So it's not a a bait and switch to try to get you to go do something. That's super important. And you know what? We, We shouldn't gloss over that because going back to the very beginning of this conversation where we talk about moving to this idea of creating stuff for society and having 
organizations and companies and teams provide real impact and real value, I think is very important. So good for you to throw this out there and, and make it free and make it accessible for folks. And I think a lot of people will appreciate that. Congrats on your you know your career. Uh, it's been an unbelievable ride. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Victor. It's a pleasure to have you. Adam, now such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Have a great one. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Entrepreneurs Exposed is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at Scriberbase.com. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. It helps our audience find us. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash E2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. DC, I host the rock podcast back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30 minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to back to the arena, the interviews. Electric acid. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Electric acid.